Another great show on tap for you today. Two timely conversations uh, today as we commemorate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter this weekend here in Limerick Park and across the nation. In our second hour, a conversation with Dr. Wendy Talley about understanding racial trauma, the mental and emotional injury of racism. And in our third hour. My name is Sabrina Fulton. I'm from Miami, Florida. My occupation is public speaker, author, community activist, mother. I got involved with this movement because I lost my son, Trayvon Martin, on February 26, 2012. The reason why I do this movement and I feel like I have to do what I'm doing is because my son Trayvon is not here to speak for himself. So I speak for all the Trayvon Martins. I speak for my son. I speak for your son. I speak for America. I have to fight. I have to fight for the people that cannot fight for themselves. The mother of Trayvon Martin, Sabrina Fulton, joins us today in Hour 3. Well, we commence today's program talking racial politics with Professor Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, author, and radio host extraordinaire, Dr. Carsonia K. Whitehead. Kay, how are you today? I'm doing well. So happy to be back on with you. Thank happy, you. happy to have you back on. Thank you for the time. A lot to talk about in this hour, uh, particularly as we um, uh, mentioned a moment ago, as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, we'll talk about that as we move through this hour. But I, I wanted to have you back on for a couple of reasons. One, because I wanted to just uh, unpack what it means that BLM is turning 10. We'll do that um, again as we move through the hour. But I, I was reading my my newspaper uh, some days ago. Uh, newspapers, plural. <laughs> I'm going through a bunch of them every day, trying to trying to stay on top of things as as do you every day. I'm sure. Uh, going through my New York Times, and there I see this huge, beautiful picture of this black family in Baltimore, uh, and this and the story is about affirmative action and how one particular family in Baltimore is navigating. All the pieces, all the tentacles of affirmative action. I read the article and I say, OMG, this is, <laughs> this is Kasanya K. Whitehead's family in Baltimore. So the LA, the, uh, the New York Times uh, got a hold of you and your family and spent some time with you all really dissecting how one particular African-American family uh, is navigating conversations around the issue of affirmative action. So before I get into what came out in that article, uh, give me a sense of how that how that story came to be. So I was actually being interviewed. They were just asking me to give a blurb. And first, let me just say thank you so much for inviting me here. Thank you for reaching out after you read the article. It was really exciting um, for my family to be featured. They were asking me for a quote, the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, where does your family stand? I said, well, I have two college-educated, young African-American sons I'm raising with my husband, and we all have different perspectives from the very, very far right to the far left, which is where I am. And they said, forget about the quote, we want to profile your family. <laughs> to have one black family, to have this many perspectives, really gives a sense of how black folks all over the country are struggling. We all don't agree mm -hmm. on what should happen with affirmative action. Yeah. So as we all know, uh, black folk are not a monolith. And it's it, it's worth re reminding uh, people that every now and then that we don't all think uh, or move in the same way. Uh, but it is also interesting uh, that in one particular family, you could have opinions about affirmative action that are that diverse. So let me just start by framing the conversation. There's you, there's your husband, there are your two sons, as you mentioned earlier. Give me a sense, uh, where, of broadly speaking, of where everybody stands in the family on this issue, and we'll jump from there. 
Okay, so I'm, of course, the most progressive. Mm -hmm. I am someone that clearly stands in the space as someone who has benefited from affirmative action. I was the first black person to attend the International Peace Studies uh, Master's Program at University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know affirmative action had some say in that. I'm also the daughter of civil rights activists. I was taught my entire life the things we have fought for were put in place because we can't trust the racist system to do the right thing. We have to force it to do the right thing. Mm. Um, my youngest son, who's a fencer, who's actually training for the Olympics, is on the far right. He's extremely conservative. <laughs> and, and actually, um, they opened up the article with him. He believes that you know it should only be merit-based, that color should be removed. Um, and, and at 20 years old, we never told him how to think. I just think what we do with our children, Tavis, is that we give them the skills and the courage they need to be able to think and speak their truth. Mm-hmm. So I never corrected, but my whole thing is you have to be able to argue your opinion from the facts. Yes. Extrapolate your opinion from the facts. I don't want to know here how you feel. Go and do the research. So he is to the far right. My older son, who just graduated from Rose, is an English major. He falls center of left. And so he is not as extreme in the progressive idea as I am, but he does believe that affirmative action needs to be in place. We cannot trust the system to do the right thing. And then my husband's a centrist. He's like, okay, there are parts of affirmative action I do like. I'm just wondering about the long-term impact and implications of it. So you can imagine what dinner time is like at our table <laughs> as we fight through all of these issues, which is exciting to me because in my book, Letters to My Black Sons, where I talk about my sons as early as the age of four, all I ever wanted them to do is to be able to stand up and argue their perspective and never shrink on that. Yeah, you beat me to it. I can't imagine what dinners must be like in, in the in the Whitehead household. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that gives us a frame. Uh, my friend Connie Rice was on yesterday, and, and she's always advising me, as this audience knows, to get the frame right. So now we understand the frame that we are in. I want to interrogate that frame when we come forward. Our guest is Kay Whitehead out of Baltimore City. Right now, though, on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, prepared this week to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter, a huge event uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, if you've been listening to this station, you have heard this, no doubt, many times. Uh, Black Lives Matter turns 10 this week, and so this weekend there's a huge People's Justice Festival in Lambert Park adjacent to this studio all day this Saturday, 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. with performances and a children's village and giveaways and Skillshare and vendors and a healing justice space and all kinds of brilliant speakers, including uh, our friend and brother Dr. Cornell West, a Green Party presidential candidate, uh, presidential candidate that is, takes the stage at about 4.30. Uh, I'll be bringing him on, uh, Dominique Prima and yours truly are the main stage host for a good part of the day, and so it's my honor to bring Dr. West on the stage at about 4.30. Uh, going to be a lot of people here from all across the country celebrating the various chapters, all descending upon L.A. this weekend to celebrate uh, the 10th anniversary of BLM, of course, that hashtag founded here in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, here we are a decade later, and the whole world uh, knows that phrase, Black Lives Matter. So it's going to be a great day here in Los Angeles this weekend. I know there'll be other celebrations, commemorations around the country, but L.A. is the place to be this weekend for the People's Justice Festival <laughs> uh, all day this Saturday. Uh, again, at Lamar Park, just across the street, um, uh, down the street from where we sit right now talking to Kay Whitehead. Okay, well, again, we'll get to BLM a little bit later in this conversation, but let me continue on this uh, line of conversation we're having about affirmative action and the uniquely different takes in your family. First of all, if I jump back into that, uh, I, I I love this, but how does a Negro from Baltimore end up being in fencing? <laughs> that, that, that's what I want to know. <laughs> but beyond beyond everything else, how did this black man get into? I mean, I love it, but fencing. Yes, <laughs> I know my my husband. 
uh, at one point took an acting class and he, he they were playing with swords and he said then this is years and years ago he said if I ever have a son I'm going to get my son in fencing my oldest son came along and he was just he's so adept at catching he said you know what he's going to go in baseball mm-hmm. and then he started giving my youngest son sticks to play with and use them as swords. And so he's been fencing since, since he was seven. He's been to the Junior Olympics twice. He's mm. ranked about 16 in the country. And he fences D1 as a fencer at Lafayette College. So he is amazing as a foil fencer. But, but I think foil fencing and, of course, thinking about all the issues of the black man in America, all of that is framing mm. his perspective, I think, which is fascinating to think about the ways in which our children are doing things that we never did or never even knew. I never even knew about fencing when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And so when my son walks on the strip, I will tell you, there's a certain amount of pride I have when he walks on the strip and he pulls off his helmet and his big dreadlocks fall everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I often think that this is what our ancestors meant when they talked about the hope and dream of the slave, Mm -hmm. that coming from enslaved people in South Carolina to you fencing on the strip at the Junior Olympics and knocking everybody out the way with the pride and strength in your back, standing up straight. To me, that's what it means to be able to push this whole thing forward. Mm, this is getting rich. Okay, let me interrogate that. I got two or three things I want to, to, to throw at you in that regard. <laughs> uh, let, let me let let me start with this. I was in a conversation the other day. We, we kind of teed it up, and I really couldn't pivot too deeply into it, although I've had this conversation countless times in my career, as you have no doubt had in your career as well on WEAA, uh, my favorite public station in uh, in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, in your in your academic work, I know you've had these conversations. So we were tiptoeing around a conversation the other day. Again, I couldn't get into it as deeply as I wanted about integration and whether or not yeah. integration was good on balance for black folk. We were talking about that in, in light of a conversation about the Negro Leagues. Uh, this week was the All-Star Game in Major League Baseball in Seattle. Yes. We were talking yes. about the Negro Leagues and the the, the, the impact, the undeniable impact uh, the Negro Leagues had on, has had, still has, frankly, on Major League Baseball. That mm-hmm. said, you can yes. see how we were tiptoeing around a conversation about integration. I, I raise that with you now because of the story about your son, there's no way that this black man could have been even in fencing some years ago, right? Uh, and and I, I, let me just let me just ask whether two questions, and I'll get out of your way. I don't tend to ask two questions back to back, but you can handle it because you're a talk show host. Let me give you two, <laughs> and you take it. The first question is on balance: whether you think integration was good for us. Number one, and number two, to the extent that your son's worldview and his exposure. Uh, and the way he shows up in the world and the spaces that he's navigating clearly have some impact on the way he sees the world. And the way he sees yeah. the world is to not be a fan of affirmative action. Does that concern you? Those are my two questions. I'm shutting up. Okay. So, so the first one, um, I, I tend to, to think deeply about what Dr. King said. Um, you know, there's this quote, of course, where he talked about perhaps we integrate into a burning house. Mm-hmm. And I know what Thurgood Marshall said he was really conflicted, that integration did not mean we would lose everything, but that there should be a coming together of both sides, not a closing down of everything we have to be folded into everything they have and be second-class citizens. So so I struggle with uh, integration, but I also know I work at a PWI, which some people call a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. I call it a persistently white institution, <laughs> and that this is the, the space that, that I navigate and move very intentionally. I am HBCU born and bred, but I believe that someone's got to teach the children at the PWIs. Who's going to help them to realize and recognize these issues that we're talking about? And two, for my son, I guess both my sons, 
which is why it's so fascinating, because they had similar experiences. Both of them attended private schools. Mm -hmm. So they were, in many aspects, one of only a handful uh, of young black boys at a private school in elementary school. They went to Calvert, which is completely persistently white. Mm-hmm. And so they had very few experiences with people of color. And then they went to Gilman, which is a, a private all-boys school in Baltimore City, um, that they've had these unique experiences. And then they're in, at least for my youngest, a predominantly white sport. Now, what we have done is we've made sure that we have this kind of group of families, of, of other black families. So they're like, mm-hmm. you have to keep your roots. You have to stay connected. But here's the thing. Even though you know what it means to struggle, you know the history. I've been feeding you, you know, history about our people since you were on my hip. I mean, I'm feeding you potatoes and salad and also talking about, you know, Dr. King and Mary McLeod Bethune. So you know this mm-hmm. from the ground up. But, but your job is to figure out, is this the best way for us to go forward? I am not worried about him because I, I would argue he was born and bred Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, 10 years ago, he was 10. He was marching with me mm-hmm. everywhere I travel. We marched one time 18 miles mm-hmm. coming down from Philly to take that document to D.C. So that was his bread and butter. The way he's thinking through it, is that the way he's going to end? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's fascinating to watch our children grow and ask difficult questions of other people and of themselves. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking now, now this is this is getting good. I'm thinking now of the ways in which, and you'll recall this, uh, it seems like just yesterday, the ways in which black families were divided during the Hillary versus Barack campaign. Yes, yes. That, oh thing, goodness, that yes. thing got vicious, man. I mean, it was... It got vicious. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it was also a generational piece. Yes, there, yes. There was a religious piece yes. where the church stood. Like, that was uh-huh. a really challenging time in our community. It was. And so I, I raised that because um, in the end, and I, I have to remind Negroes now, you know, no, no, we were not always down with Barack Obama. There was a point in no, time in which was a point. <laughs> Hillary Clinton was there beating him. There was a him. point when we said. That's right. We, 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 we knew the we Clintons. We were all wearing our pantsuits talking that, about lining up with the Clintons. That's right. <laughs> I, we, we, we were all saying, I'm with her. I'm with her. Right. Remember that? I'm with oh, her. Oh, my goodness. So yes, we, I've we, been there. We, we did not know Barack Barack Hussein Obama at the time. We knew the Clintons. We knew that Bill Clinton knew every word, uh, chorus, and verses of, li- of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Did. That's right. Tony Morrison called, called him the first black president. <laughs> so so, so the, the Clintons had our vote, and, and black folk always want to act like we've always been down with Barack Obama. No, we were not. Let me just no, we let me just keep it real. No, we were not. Black people writ large, just remind you how this happens because y'all want to lie to yourself. We did not, as a community writ large, get behind Barack Obama until the good white folk in Iowa gave him yep, a victory. Maybe he's viable. That's maybe exactly right. When the yep. good white folk in Iowa said this Negro is viable, then we lined up. It changed Bar- everything. And then, and then here comes Jim Clyburn coming from South Carolina said, you know what, wait a minute. That's right. Maybe we can make make some strides here because, you know, Clyburn was definitely, I mean, he's along with my dad. My dad is in South, moved back to South Carolina. He's his childhood friend. Right. They know they were standing with Hillary because they exactly were standing right. with Bill. That's despite right. Despite everything that had happened to our community. That so it was a vicious time. It was a generational time. It was indeed. Now, why did I raise that? I raised that because I'm curious as to how in a family where there are four disparate positions on affirmative action, Y'all get along. How 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 has your family not been divided the way other black families were around Hillary and Barack? 
<laughs> that this is a very good question. Mm. Um, so in the last election, uh, <laughs> without going too far into it, but we all voted for different candidates in the last election. Wow. Um, and so we, <laughs> yes, vastly different candidates in the last election. Um, because, you know, as we have trained our children, your vote belongs to you. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't vote as a block. You know, when you step into that, that you pull that curtain back. Or in some cases in Baltimore, you go into court and with your pencil and paper, mm-hmm. in either case, the ballot belongs to you. And so we would sometimes have politics-free dinners where we would talk about other things. Mm-hmm. But when we started talking about politics and you lay Biden on the table and you lay Trump on the table and you start talking about progressive candidates, you start talking about Green Party candidates, it gets pretty, pretty vicious because we have this rule at the dinner table that we introduce questions. You cannot use your phone. So mm-hmm. if you have a fact, you need to go get, go, what book are you pulling that from? Go pull the book and bring mm-hmm. it to the table. Mm-hmm. Go, go pull the article, but you can't use your phones. You're not going to rely on Google. So if you're saying you're supporting Trump or Biden based upon what, where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. What have they done? How did you get here? And what do you expect them to do based upon what they have said? Mm. This may be this may be too. It's exciting. Yeah, this may be, yeah, yeah yeah that's that's one word for it. <laughs> exciting. <laughs> this this. But you know you know the reason why I say exciting though, but have to think about that. Yeah. Genius in our children. I mean, they're twenty two and twenty at the time they were you know, eighteen, nineteen. That kind of genius, that kind of brilliance. Isn't that what we want for mm-hmm. our children to be able to to argue these issues? It'd be great if they voted just like me. But but then I haven't done my job as a parent. Yeah. I'm not trying to make a replica of myself. I'm trying to make you into your own person, and you can figure it out on your path just like i had to figure it out on my path yeah how do you resist though this notion that many older uh i mean let me let me rephrase that many chronologically gifted african-americans have this notion they have <laughs> this notion they have th- these these young folk don't know nothing they, they they don't know nothing they 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 owe a debt that they can never never repay and they just don't know nothing and that's how they end up being against corrective programs like affirmative action uh, because it's the same argument that I, I've heard against me, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I've been taught my whole life that there was there's a debt I can't pay, yeah. that I have to spend my life paying it forward. I, I think I just want to throw in here, as you know, I'm a pastor's kid. Mm-hmm. So PK, this notion of, of responsibility as a PK, yeah. of what does it mean to never be able to pay? Like, there are two debts I can never pay. Mm-hmm. I can never pay the blood debt as a Christian, and I can never pay the debt to my oh, ancestors. Oh, you're preaching now. You're preaching and now, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, but that, that's been the frame of my whole life. And so I taught my sons both that as as an and both, right? So there is a debt you have to pay, but but there's also a piece of it that you have to carve out for yourself. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? When you're saying, I am not doing this just because I'm falling in line. Sometimes falling in line means I have to make that break. Now, Again, we're talking about a 20-year-old who, who you would love, by the way. He's just, he's funny. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant. He's just, he's amazing. Um, and, you know, he's been in tons of interviews. But but he's figuring it out. And mm-hmm. I tell him, I said, it's okay to, to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Now, you might be surprised when you turn 30 that the views you had at 20 are not the ones you have now. Oh, yes. Or, or maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so some people, you just become more of yourself. I said, but the person I was at 21 talking about burning it all down yeah. is not the person talking about 401Ks today <laughs> and like trying to get my law, my last will and testament together <laughs> so it's not written on a napkin stuffed yeah. in a pouch, right? So yeah. it's not the same person, but you, you begin to grow up and part of the debt you begin to owe is a debt towards your mortgage and your car loan. Like it's just 
begins to shift if you have the blessing to be able to grow and become chronologically gifted in this society, because not everyone gets that blessing no, to be I, able to struggle with things as you get older. No, I heard that subtle reference to the Queen of Soul, and don't get me started talking about Aretha. I, she was my, <laughs> she was my friend, and I love her dearly. But that drama this week Ooh, about that will, yeah. good lord, I just. <laughs> but you know what? It made me go pull out my will. I said, yeah, let me make sure my stuff yeah. is in order no. and not in my couch, because that just that that that's not how we should roll with people. No. That's just my opinion. Unless you, yeah. live, unless you, in case you didn't hear this story, <laughs> uh, there was a case this weekend that was decided about the the the, the will of the late great Queen of Soul, Aretha oh, Franklin. Goodness. There were two pieces of paper that she'd written on. Uh, one they found under the couch, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and there was there was a, there was a court case. Family's been fighting since she passed away a few years ago, five years ago now, I guess, uh, about which will would be enforced, and both were written on paper, oh, and a bunch of drama. And so, just I love the Queen of Soul, I miss her dearly, but don't be like Aretha, and don't be like my friend Prince. Get your will and testament oh, together. Get in order. Yeah, so your family doesn't. I mean, up. that's a show we should do at some point. Oh, absolutely. Like, we need to talk about how we can get, but it's also a way of how do you plan for, for, for generational wealth yeah. and, and part of our conversation, generational knowledge. Like yeah. It's two things. I always tell my sons, you know, silver and gold have I none. That's it. I cannot give you that. But what I can give you is a strong name for you to stand on yeah. and things I can provide through my will and my testament, which is everything down to you don't have to ever worry. Well, who did mama want to have this? Fine. It's going to be in the will. Yeah. Check you know, the footnotes. No. There. You said something a moment ago. <laughs> you said actually three things that I want to, this conversation again, I'm just, I'm just following you. It's going everywhere and I love it. Um, I was in a conversation the other day. I'm, I'm a PK as well, as you may recall. Uh, and mm -hmm. I was in a conversation the other day about the ways in which in this country right now, too many fellow citizens are putting the flag above the cross, mm. putting the flag above the cross. I want to interrogate that with you of all people. Uh, when we come forward, what does it mean to live in a nation where politically people have decided to put the flag above the cross let me just ask you right quick though uh, Kay, uh before i go to uh news traffic and sports and i'm getting too close you can tell me since y'all are, are divided on affirmative action did all four y'all agree on westmore as the black governor of maryland no it was, that was another discussion wow. we got to talk wow. about that as well okay okay hold that thought <laughs> i thought i thought the first brother governor might might get all four y'all on the same page if not affirmative action. Okay, a great deal more to unpack when we come forward. I guess Dr. Kasanya K. Whitehead, uh, Emmy-nominated uh, filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, brilliant professor, uh, author, and uh, the best host in the city of Baltimore. She hosts today with Dr. K. on WEAA 88.9 FM. But right now, she's on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Meyer. This is KBLA Talk 1580. I think we're going to be all right. Uh, glad to have you tuned in today. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Kasanya K. Whitehead, uh, brilliant talk show host in Baltimore City, uh, Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, professor, author, brilliant all-around sister, mother of two boys, <laughs> wife, uh, and we've been talking about her family. Uh, some days ago, her family was featured in a major story in the New York Times, uh, this black family of four that has disparate views on the issue of affirmative action. And now we learn moments ago before news traffic and sports, it's not just affirmative action. They couldn't all agree on the first black governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. Tell me about that, Kay. <laughs> so I, I will say we all agree now. Yeah. Uh, but but at the time, um, and, you know, of course, we, I mean, Wes Moore, I'm a major supporter of his work. Sure. Westmore is progressive. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are someone who doesn't believe in a progressive 
stance in terms of policy to Baltimore City, that's where it is. We have different ideas on what should happen. We know that Baltimore City is a contested place, that crime is an issue here. And we have different versions of how the crime should be dealt with in this city. Mm-hmm. And Westmore, as a progressive, stands with the progressive politics who believe that we need to talk about how do we help young people from the ground up? How do we do more work where we do intervention work, where we have folks out on the streets trying to stop crime? That is very different than, you know what, you need to arrest those that are criminals no matter the age. Mm-hmm. And so it became a huge uh, story. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, and I think that every time there is a candidate running, it's the same type of interrogation at our table. Yeah. Now that they're older, like we go through and we look at the policies, we look at the plans, we ask questions of each other. Um, and then we go in and of course we, we make our own decisions when we vote. But now that Westmore's in office and is doing quite an amazing job, I don't know if that's convinced everyone, but I'm convinced, but I, I was convinced of course before yeah, he yeah. got elected. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed you were as were many others. That's why he is uh, the governor of Maryland. Uh, yes, he is. Let, let me, let me go back to what I teed up a moment ago, again, before news traffic and sports. And it was, I, this thought came to me, uh, based upon a number of things that you said earlier uh, on our on our tender on our money we know the phrase in god we trust so we profess that uh as we pass uh, uh currency around all the time in god we trust and yet if i had the time i could with you i don't need to it's a smart audience i think they get it as well i'm trying to juxtapose this notion that on our currency we we continue to advance this notion in god we trust And yet, in so many ways, politically, I see too many fellow citizens putting, as I would put it, the flag above the cross. How does that resonate with you? So look historically at America and the notion that we have this phrase on our money. I'm thinking of greasy money that's being used to buy enslaved people, to to purchase weapons that have been used to destroy people, uh, to keep people oppressed. Like, you know, in God We Trust is also just just the center of a capitalist nation Mm -hmm. that believes in oppression. We know that the religion is mocked here. Like This notion that we are a Christian nation is something that is mocked. When people hold up the flag above the cross, I think what they're doing is they're taking the flag and they're making the flag into to their cross. Mm. It is that that's what they worship. Mm. It is not the cross in the way that if you are someone that comes out of the Christian faith and the belief, you understand what it means to die to the cross, mm. right? Mm. To be able to say that I need to do things for the good of others and not for the center of myself. That belief, doing it for myself, doing it in the name of money, doing it in the name of white supremacy, means you've taken that red, white, and blue flag and you've just shaped it as a cross. You want to hide behind religion as a way of getting your white supremacist views across, which is historically what this nation has been about. We go all the way back to slavery. Mm -hmm. That takes me straight back to affirmative action. I want to go back to that just for a second here, and then we'll move forward and talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. But I want to go back to affirmative action because— um, if we, again, put the cross above the flag and not the other way around, uh, then one would think that we live in a nation <laughs> where uh, where everybody is treated as equal. We know that's that's a mockery. Right. We know that's a joke. Right. But, I, but I want to quote from uh, a piece that uh, our friend and brother Ellie Mistal wrote uh, recently uh, yes. this week in The Nation magazine. You know Ellie, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant brother yes. when yes. it comes brilliant. to these uh, Supreme mm-hmm. Court issues. And here's what <clears throat> Ellie Mistal had to write. Uh, wrote rather in the nation this week about affirmative action uh and he, he his headline essentially says that the white media is missing this here's the one thing 
uh, at least one thing that the white mainstream media is missing about the affirmative action debate. So listen carefully. Quoting from Ellie Mistall of The Nation magazine. As a result, the real upshot of the affirmative action ruling is this. Colleges and universities must now punish black applicants by decreasing the enrollment of black students by any means necessary. That's because the only way universities can show compliance with Chief Justice Roberts' new rules is to show that they have decreased the number of black kids they let into school. Anything less than that will likely trigger litigation from the white supremacists who have already promised to hunt down schools that admit too many black people, as determined by their own white uh, makes right accounting system. Now, the point is pretty clear. It's not just that affirmative action is going to slow the process of black people getting accepted into colleges and universities. What Ellie's arguing is that the number is going to have to decrease to, 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 to show that we are compliant with the new law. And if those numbers do not go down, then these white supremacist organizations will, will, will advance more litigation uh, to keep advancing this notion of a colorblind society. That's a particular and peculiar point that people have really not made, but Ellie, I think, made it brilliantly, Kay. Yes, he did. Um, which, and I definitely agree. He's brilliant. He's been on my show a number of times. He is amazing. And I mm-hmm. think that that piece that you're talking about is a piece that I read as well. And I like, that is the part that nobody wants to t- talk about. What exactly are we going to lose in the long run? What are schools going to lose? And what are they going to have to do mm-hmm. in order to be in compliance? I also think that, just as an aside, I think this is an amazing power play by Judge Roberts, who I believe has felt this entire time that he's lost control of the court. Mm-hmm. And this is his power play moment. He has regained control of the court. The interesting thing with affirmative action is that the biggest uh, group that actually benefited was white women. Oh, yeah. The biggest group that complained about affirmative action was white women. So, okay, <laughs> so you are willing to burn it all down, even though you are benefiting from it. And my concern is where are we going to make our stand? What can we do other than trying to pack the court. As I tell people, that's not going to happen. President Joe Biden is not going to make that decision. What can you do on the local levels to begin to support the type of governor you need to have in place, the type of local Senate you need to have in place to be able to stand against this? This is a battle that is not going to be over for a while, because I am not sure if the court is ever going to turn, at least in the next 20 years, to a point that they can go against this and make some and write this very egregious wrong. Again, I continue to follow you as I often do, always do. Um, I had two women on this program a few weeks ago who host a very popular podcast called Dear White Women. Um, That's the podcast, very popular, uh, hosted by uh, two females. Uh, And since you mentioned white women a moment ago uh, in the issue of affirmative action, uh, this is a loaded question, I I, I warn you, but what, what, what is your take politically on the role of white women in our body politic right now? So I think that there are two distinct parts, and, and I speak now um, as the president of the National Women's Studies Association, mm-hmm. where as the largest, the largest academic organization in women and gender studies, we have a lot of white women members who are allies, mm-hmm. who are willing to bend their privilege uh, to stand sometimes in front of, because sometimes the battle is not our battle to fight. Yeah. 
and they have to be willing to make that battle. We also have this, this divide within the white community because there are a number of white women, and I mean, I won't just use the, the popular term Karen, but a number of white women who are committed to trying to remind black people of what they believe their place is. And I say black, I'm going to include brown people and indigenous people mm-hmm. and people from all different communities, that there is a commitment to this. That reminds me of what uh, a writer once said. He said, you know, if a white woman had to choose between standing up for black women and standing up for her white son, she will always choose her son, even if her son is going to put things in place that go against black women and all women. Mm. Because I want to make sure mm-hmm. that my white son has everything he needs. Black, white women right now, that is the weapon that we are fighting against. The white women who are convinced that in order for this society to survive, they have to stand with these conservative white men who are putting laws in place that impact them as well. Yeah. But they're willing to overlook that if it means it will impact us. Yeah. Uh, in our third hour today, our final hour, we'll be talking to the mother of Trayvon Martin. Sabrina Fulton joins us live for the hour uh, as we celebrate, commemorate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Black, My- Black Lives Matter, as you well know, uh, show enough kicked into, in, into gear. Uh, after the murder of her son, Trayvon, in Florida. We'll be joined by her in our third hour today. And for the rest of this hour, when we come forward, Dr. Kasanya K. Whitehead, we will talk about, as she sees it, the legacy of BLM 10 years in. When we come forward on KBLA Talk. As I mentioned earlier in this hour, um, this weekend, we will celebrate, commemorate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter um, with the People's Justice Festival. All kinds of folk descending on L.A. this weekend. Uh, 12 to 6 p.m. in Lumberry Park are adjacent to this studio. Performances, Children's Village, giveaways, Skillshare, vendors, healing justice space, a great deal more, including a number of brilliant speakers. Uh, Dr. Cornell West, uh, Green Party presidential candidate, takes the stage at about 4.30. Uh, Dominic DePrima, yours truly, uh, two of the uh, hosts on the main stage this Saturday. So it should be a great day uh, celebrating uh, the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Every single day this week, we've had different guests on to share their thoughts about BLM uh, at the uh, first decade uh, of their work and witness. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be joined by Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, in our third hour today to get her take uh, on losing her baby uh, a decade ago and um, the, uh, the, the, the work and witness of Black Lives Matter to bring that to the attention of the nation. And I think I want to start with this, uh, with UK, talking about BLM. Um, it is It is not lost on me. I was talking to... Miles, my, 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 my board op, used to work for uh, a good friend of mine named Michael Baisden. Uh And I, I remember Michael uh, really just raising the flag about the Genesis 6 uh, um, back in the day when nobody really wanted to talk about um, uh, those, right. those six persons. And, and I think about uh, the role that Tom Joyner, I was on that show, of course, for a dozen years, Tom Joyner, and so many other black media outlets played. Uh, in raising this issue of Trayvon Martin. I was doing commentaries about it. I'm not the only one. There are many others. But had it not been for black media uh, and Black Lives Matter raising our voices about the murder of Trayvon Martin, um, his name would not be a a household name these days. Uh, And so I I, want to start uh, by giving you a chance to sort of sound off on on the role that black media played um, uh, in making sure that the country knew about Trayvon Martin, and then more broadly, your thoughts on BLM 10 years in. Thank you for that. Um, black media, of course, is is the place where I found out about Trayvon Martin. Going back 10 years, I used to listen to WEAA, which is, of course, now where I have my show for the last six years. But it was on WEAA, and they were talking about this case. 
And I could not understand why I didn't know anything about it. As a researcher, as someone who was raising black boys in this country, I'm like, why don't I know about this? What has happened? Why am I not more tuned in? To what is happening with our people. I want to remind people this is before we would log on to uh, Twitter to get the news or, mm-hmm. or Facebook. I mean, Facebook that time, we were taking pictures of food, right? Yep. <laughs> giving very simple updates. People, you know, because we have to remember how social media became an active part of movement through Black Lives Matter. It, it definitely changed how we use social media and how we understood social media. So it was a turning point for me um, because I worked specifically on Black women's history. At that moment, mm-hmm. and thinking about Trayvon and listening to his mother and her cries and asking and begging for justice forced me to look at my own son and say, okay, what am I doing? If I cannot help co-create a world where my own sons can get home safely, similar to what Trayvon's mother has said, if I can't do this for my own son and for other sons that look like this, what exactly am I doing? Mm-hmm. And I changed my entire research. I mean, for me, that was the birth of the Black Mommy Activist, which mm-hmm. is my handle. It was born out of that moment, and it was a commitment for my family that, and not only am I going to march at Black Lives Matter, my sons are going to march as well. So I was pulling them out of school mm. and said, there's an education you need that's coming from the streets that you can't get in this classroom that should become part of the, the genome of who you are. Yeah. Like, this is what you need to do. So I think Black media in that moment was just a stark reminder of why we have to be in control of shaping our own narrative. Because when we are not, then we keep getting written out of the story. When we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Kay Whitehead, I want to get her her take uh, on what Black Lives Matter has been able to accomplish over these 10 years. As I've said all this week, um, they're, they're... their impact, to my mind, is undeniable. It is incontrovertible, and yet it is also controversial. Uh, but I want to get her take on what BLM has done in these first 10 years. We'll do that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Kay Whitehead, I close by asking, uh, we got a few minutes left here, um, what do you make of what BLM has been able to accomplish over this first decade? What do you make of their journey as a decentralized organization? One of the things that I, I love about Black Lives Matter, and I think this is one of the, the major things of accomplishment, is that it taught us, uh, those who were listening, that you don't need to have one central leader. Mm-hmm. That, that if the movement rests on the shoulders of leaders, when they go after that leader, as we have found historically, I don't have to remind people of King to X and the whole, the whole pathway mm-hmm. of how they targeted and killed our leaders in the hopes of stopping the movement. And it did have the movement very disoriented and unorganized because you're reeling with the loss of that person. We found Black Lives Matter. It was both leaderless and leaderful, right? Mm-hmm. And it gave space to local leadership to step in because you were not fighting one centralized topic, top target. It was not just about, you know, breaking down the wall of Jim Crow and looking mm. to have, you know, the executive branch enforced where they become law. It was about what are the different issues that you're dealing with on your local level. We're all dealing with this issue around the police, but we're dealing with lead here in Baltimore. You might be dealing with, you know, an extreme case of poverty in Harlem. Whatever your issue was, local leadership begins to get more actively involved. It made space for activists. It made space for people to organize outside of the university. Like I have seen the emergence of the last 10 years of local leaders who are not organizing through a college. They're organizing through their community center. Mm -hmm. They started organizing in their house and then they went after grants to support the work they were doing. It has been a major shifter 
in our community, but it's also been a target. And that's the point you were making as well. Yeah. Black Lives Matter is extremely controversial. And I think that is because of the way the media has shaped the story, going back to the, the importance of black media, because in the hands of white media, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization, mm-hmm. right? It's a danger and a threat to who we are. But if you look in the hands of black media, Black Lives Matter gave voice to those who have no voice. It made us focus on police brutality. It put the names of the people who had been killed in our face. We could not look away, except when it became inconvenient for some white communities, they felt that Black Lives Matter was a day job, that they can finish with it and it's been completed and I can move on to the next, quote, big movement in my pathway. And black folks, we understand that Black Lives Matter, the struggle to show the world that our lives, now this is a long struggle that stretches back through the arm of history to where we are now. So I mentioned earlier, we will be joined by uh, the mother of Trayvon Martin, Sabrina Fulton, in our third and final hour today. Um, Let me thank now our friend, uh, Dr. Kalsanya K. Whitehead, uh, again, uh, three-time Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, author, award-winning radio host of Today with Dr. K on WEAA 88.9 FM uh, in Baltimore, the mother of those two brilliant boys, one who's training for the Olympics as a fencer. (laughs) I I, I hope, I I would love for this brother to make the Olympics, K. Oh, well, you hopefully look for him in 2028. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. 2028. So, and then you have to have a conversation with him. Let's just keep pulling for him and no. for him and give, make give, the give, space available. Give me him. his name for those who want to read more about him. He's been, he's been all in, in the news media. Give, give me his name, his full name. Yes. His name is Amir, A-M-I-R, Amir Elisha Whitehead. He's on the front cover of the Baltimore Sun Sports Edition. Again, we'll take a look at him, check his record, and see when he's fencing in your community. He'll be fencing in Italy in the spring. So. If you're in Italy, you can see him there. Proud mama, proud black mama. I love it. Uh, Kay, I'll I'll talk to you again soon. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.